Welcome to Social Impact Now, a podcast for social change makers, with your host, Elaine Rasmussen. The Social Impact Now podcast lifts up the work of social change makers like you who are powering a positive impact and equity in our communities. It's time for you and your host, Elaine Rasmussen, to drive Social Impact Now. On today's episode of Social Impact Now, I'm pleased to have Melinda Weeks Laidlow, founder of Beautiful Ventures, a social impact fund focused on early stage creative businesses ignited by the transformative possibilities at the intersection of art, business, and social change. After heading up her own law firm for several years, Melinda served as interim general counsel of Carver National Bank and worked as senior associate for the Interaction Institute for Social Change, where she built the capacity of individuals, communities, and network toward more effective and collaborative and inclusive social change. Deepening her focus on systemic and institutional change work, Melinda then spent several years as the managing director for Race Forward, the Center for Racial Justice Innovation and presenter of Facing Race, the nation's largest multiracial, multidisciplinary, intergenerational gathering on racial justice. A native New Yorker who flows between New York and Atlanta, Melinda serves on the advisory board of the Patricelli Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Wesleyan University and is a social entrepreneur in residence at Echoing Green. Weeks Laidlow holds degrees from Wesleyan University, Harvard University, and New York University School of Law. Melinda Weeks Laidlow is the president of Weeks in Advance Enterprises, an organizational development firm offering consulting, facilitation, coaching, and professional development services in arts and culture, social innovation, racial equity, and collaborative leadership spaces. Well, thank you, Melinda, for being here today. We're so excited to have you. I'm just going to jump right in and start with our first question. You've started Beautiful Ventures Fund. Tell us more about the fund and why was it important to start this fund? Sure. Um, First of all, thank you for having me, Elaine. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, And Beautiful Ventures uh, really was born out of my decades-long experience uh, working in the social sector, building the capacity of individuals and institutions and networks around collaborative change and systemic change, structural change. Um, I particularly was interested in racial equity, and one of the things that I really focused on in helping folks figure out how to actually change um, our world and make change in their communities was um, that the highest leverage points and ways to be able to do that is in the realm of what we believe, our stories, our images, um, the myths that we believe that influence our actions, that influence the policies we create, and and the systems that we create. So Beautiful Ventures is a mashup of of that truth um, and all the other things that I love, uh, particularly around racial equity, about black culture and creatives. Um, so it's a, it's a creative e- economy accelerator and fund. Our focus is on bringing to market businesses um, led by creative entrepreneurs of African descent. Um, and our high-impact uh, goal is to shift perceptions of uh, people of African descent uh, um, in our minds and the world, to shift those perceptions and to uplift those perceptions and in so doing to close this uh, racial wealth gap by creating wealth uh, in black uh, 
families and communities uh, through entrepreneurship. I'm not sure people can make the connection, so can you explain to us and talk a little bit about what do you feel is the intersection between art and creative and business and social and economic justice? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, we live now in a knowledge economy, um, and that means that um, the industrial age manufacturing uh, is still happening for sure but the, the highest growth in the sectors that we see have to do with intellectual property ideas and um, how ideas can be applied in unique ways. Um, so whether we know it or not, um, the stories that we grow up believing, the images we see on social media and TV, um, the perceptions that we have of other people really guide our behavior. Um, the, world, the world of uh, unconscious bias has taught us that, where we consciously and unconsciously have opinions about people that um, make us act upon those beliefs. So creatives are the people who work in the realm of ideas, from filmmakers to storytellers to graphic designers to fashion um, folks to toy makers um, uh, to gamers, people who do gaming, these are all folks who use ideas as their asset and put it together in amazing ways and make us feel. They make us feel emotions. They make us think differently. And, um, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, and this is Holy Week. And so one of the Proverbs is, uh, as a man or woman thinketh, so is he. Uh, so so I'm, I'm saying that these uh, creative folks, um, is an underdeveloped sector, particularly here in the States. The U.K. is m much ahead by really pouring um, um, government support, but also private capital into developing creative businesses and entrepreneurs. So they are not just selling their goods and their wares at the back of their trunk or only at a fair, but they can um, uh, scale up their businesses other people can have their stories told and be appreciated by the marketplace that are not going through the Hollywood system, for example, and they can help to inform and influence and teach us uh, who we are. And so particularly around economic justice, the case for that is particularly around um, black uh, creativity, which uh, is, is, has fueled American culture for quite some time. But not, all, not always have black folks been um, able and permitted, frankly, to reap the economic benefits of our, of our creativity uh, for racism reasons. So there's a clear link um, between uh, what happens in our marketplace, um, whose stories are being told, and how business and entrepreneurship can be uh, a tool to kind of take corrective action around those things. And that's so important. And I just saw an interview with John Singleton, and he was talking about how the importance, not only from the narrative concept, but also from an economic concept of how important it is for black people to tell black stories, because 
the story <laughs> being told by anybody else, right? Um, even even let's, let's take race out of it. If I'm trying to tell this, a story that you translated to me, it's not going to be the same. I'm interpreting it through my own eyes. I'm interpreting it through my own experience, which is not your experience, right? So then we overlay race on that, and you have a predominantly um, white uh, Hollywood system, and I know that system very well. I used to work at Warner Brothers and DreamWorks Studio, so mm. I know the system very mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how the story is not told but from the perspective of that community and how there is a fundamental yeah. shift. And somebody was, I was talking a conversation with somebody, we were talking about Jordan Peele's Get Out and how oh that story yep. never would oh have been gosh. told in that oh way. God. And it's told, mm-hmm. it, it, it was able to come to fruition because it was coming from a black experience, a black perspective, yeah. and yeah. that change that makes all the difference. And the fun, and that that it's economically viable, and that we don't have mm-hmm. that there doesn't there isn't any proof that needs to happen. Um, that yeah. it's a real story and it's an authentic story, and it has it, it there's an economy that behind it. And I think yeah. that um, you know the story about. I think there was the, I don't know if you ever saw Project Greenlight on HBO and how the black female yeah. producer on the show yeah. and how she kind yeah. of kept having to go to battle with, yeah. with Matt Damon about this issue of right. like, no, we're not going to have this all white cast and the only person of color is going to be a server. Like that's not right. going to happen. Not while my yeah. watch. <laughs> sure. So exactly. taking those opportunities to command and change the narrative, not from the inside out, but also pushing from the outside mm-hmm. in. Absolutely. It's so true. And the, and the fact that the economics support it, and we, and we have to address that living in a, in a capitalist country, um, you're absolutely right. Like, we don't need to really make that argument anymore. Anyone, any gatekeeper, any um, uh, industry maven, <laughs> that is still needing to be convinced and denying the um, thirst in the marketplace and the capital to support the um, stories that uh, uplift and just to display our humanity is, is wants to deny it because the, 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 the science is there, the research is there that, um, that, that lets us know that this is the case. And we, and, and it doesn't even be research. It's just like, you look at, advertising and you see all these hip-hop references that are now part of the nomenclature mm-hmm. um, you know you just I- any fashion all of that comes from marge from the margins uh, um, and from you know black and people of color that uh, really make American culture unique and distinctive and vibrant and innovative um, innovation always comes from the margin never from the center so yeah and and just the brilliance and the hustle of people like uh, Jordan Peele and John Singleton and Spike Lee and my muse uh, Ava DuVernay who are just like time out from making the case we need to just do it build the imp- independent structures leverage the outside do it from the inside when when it's on the terms are right but the stories need to get out. The market is there. And not only black people or people of color want to see this work. Um, Jordan Peele's $100 million, um, you know, record-breaking uh, phenom that is Get Out proves that. So, you know, even from a capitalistic perspective, the market is there. But those of us who are coming from social justice um, convictions and are looking for liberatory um, structures and stories um, and platforms 
we also hold these other values that we're going to bring to the table, um, that, that it is happening, um, together with being smart about business and, be, and knowing our worth. So I think that leads me to another thought around building the business case or the business case for equity. And what I talk about as it relates to the finance sector, I, in a tongue-in-cheek way, but in a very truthful way, say, listen, the demographic is shifting. It's happening. Whether you believe in racism, Mm -hmm. if you believe in in, in structural racism, um, that is not the that is not even on the on the table for me anymore. The fact Mm -hmm. of the matter is, we have a demographic shift, and so all of your clients who don't look like I said, you have a vested interest in the wealth building of the next people who are coming up because your client Mm -hmm. base, who all look like you, are dying. So you have a vested interest in keeping your wealth and keeping yourself employed by making sure that there is economic wealth that is coming. And, Mm. and, and that is, you know, it's called it's self, uh, you know, self-preservation. So let's be, you Mm. know, I'm in all about meeting people where they are. So even if they don't want to believe that there's a problem, okay, let me make the case for you to look at this from, from a self-preservation standpoint. What do you Mm -hmm. think is the business case for equity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, what do I think? Okay, got it. Um, yeah, I thought that was a rhetorical question to your people, but no. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all of what you said. I think um, the uh, considerable um, market power and consumer buying power, um, Nielsen Company a couple of years ago um, did studies on black, just for an example, um, black consumers and the wealth that uh, that is there, or the money that is there, um, and left on the table um, when companies don't recognize the kind of products that they want to buy. They did this uh, part of what they found was that there's like a, I think they call it like a conscious consumerism, that people want to buy products that affirm them, um, that are cu- culturally aware and competent, that are about doing good and justice um, in, their, in, in, the, in the, the products that they buy, and that feel that they honor them, they honor their viewpoint. So people of color, um, you know, are quick to lead campaigns. Black Twitter will shut folks down. Um, you know, we've just seen this this week with United Airlines and, mm-hmm. you know, last week with Pepsi. Um, so, you know, that, those things that major corporations, it speaks to, uh, of course, white supremacy and racism, but blind spots around these things where they are beginning to see the cost of not paying attention to the business case for equity, for diversity, for inclusion. Um, at this point, the, the market-based consumers just will not have it. These are millennials who are um, tastemakers and trendsetters who want to do well and to do good. They don't care so much about making a buck at any cost. They care about diversity. They care about the people that they know they went to school with or in the hood with and grew up in cities with where they, I'm a New Yorker. You know, you are just around diversity, and we sometimes take it for granted um, that everywhere is like this. That's not the case. But we learn to get along, to figure out, to respect, to uh, enjoy each other's culture, to see each other as humans and not just as the other. And that is the growing marketplace and the melting pot and any other analogy that you want to use 
for what America uh, is and can be and will continue to become. So the quicker we learn to uh, figure it out and to go with that and to learn from that and get ahead of trends, um, even from a business perspective, the more prosperous we'll be. I I think that's a great segue into my next question. In many in many metropolitan cities, as you've just uh, talked about, the demographic shift from minority to majority people of color has already happened. But in some places, like where I live in Minnesota, we're mm-hmm, projected to make mm-hmm. that shift in 2020, which really mm-hmm. isn't that far away. What yeah, do you yeah. recommend that predominantly white cities, organizations, communities do to adopt a new normal that's inclusive and equitable? Yeah. So um, that, that reminds me to a conversation I was having with a pastor friend of mine who pastors a church in Harlem. And um, as you know, many folks know, the gentrification in Harlem, where I, I used to live and call home um, and my family for generations and even now, so-called Harlem home, um, it, the, the, the piece of gentrification has, has been happening and, and has happened. And, and his stance was something I've, I felt that was really on point. He was like, you know, we welcome, you know, other people who are not African-American or come from that um, community or even come from, the, you know, the city. <laughs> uh, even black folks are moving to Harlem from other places, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you have, and into our churches, right, H- however, you, you, are, you need to appreciate and respect the culture that is already here and and blend in and fit in and understand it. And we are welcoming you so you can be included in it, but it's not to come and take over or to have um, an entitlement to obliterate and to not understand the local um, traditions and stories and businesses and people that are already here. And I think that can be multiplied to to city levels where um, as cities shift and change, how can you honor and respect and uh, cooperate, collaborate, because you want to coexist and be in community with the people who are already there so that everyone can win and they can be brought into what a lot of times is the economic growth, or opportunities that also tend to come with gentrification, but it's not being necessarily done like that in a lot of areas, and gentrification is a huge um, pain point. There's a, there's, a, there's a violence that happens, frankly, um, in these places, mm-hmm. psychic violence, cultural violence that's perpetrated when people who are coming into a community um, come with less than humility and a willingness to become a part of what was long there before you got there. Um, so th- that that would be my offering of sensibilities about how we how we do it. It's it's not a it's not a either or. It can be a both and. But I think mm-hmm. respect and hu- humility are some of the values um, that our cities need to make sure is um, important as, as these change, changes take place. There's a great scene in Quentin Tarantino's post-Civil War film, The Hateful Eight, when Samuel Jackson's character, Major Marcus Warren, is discovered that his coveted personal letter from Abraham Lincoln is fake. 
In Warren's explanation, he says the only time black folks are safe is when white folks are disarmed. What parallels or disconnects do you see in today's social, economic, political climate from this quote? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, it's no more relevant than right now. Um, I think that when white folks are disarmed of, of white supremacy, um, I taught a course last semester uh, at Marlboro College in the great state of Vermont to graduate students in the business school um, around uh, race, equity, and diversity as kind of core leadership capacities and competencies going into nonprofit business world. And really just starting with the understanding that no one is served by white supremacy. <laughs> no mm. one is served by the false belief, the story, the myth of some people being better than other people. And in the case of, of, of black folks in particular, structures and um, systems that said that some people are not even people at all, right? Native American brothers and sisters too. So black, white folks do need to be disarmed of their white supremacy because it leads them to thinking falsely about themselves um, as superior, as being entitled, um, of, of believing the hype that they are better than because they have more, because they can take on a rugged individualism mentality um, that is supported by the exploitation and um, centuries of, you know, exploitation of the labor of, of, of black people through the enslavement and Native American people, the taking of lands. You know, so, so you begin to live in a lie. <laughs> um, and so, sure, that lie is doing a disservice because your own humanity and the fullness mm. and the truth and the wholeness of who you are is being denied you even as a white person. And so black folks are not safe in that. We see it, I think, with the heightened levels of xenophobia, of white supremacy, of blatant racism, of blatant anti-Semitism that is um, being uh, allowed for, spoken of in high places in this country and with people with the power to, um, again, have our laws, our systems shifted to accommodate those lies and those dehumanizing structures without any appreciation for how it's denying folks their own humanity and their very selves their own humanity. So it is, it is dangerous um, to, um, to claim your whiteness in a way that doesn't appreciate the harm that the construct of whiteness is based upon and continues to perpetuate. So I agree with um, the character um, <laughs> and, and that brilliant line, I guess, of the writer there. It might have been Tarantino or someone else. Uh, black folks and, and any other kind of folks who are not um, uh, white, male, wealthy, privileged, able-bodied, cisgendered, 
uh, Christian uh, are in peril when, uh, when people are armed in ways that um, deny other folks their humanity. But I think there's also this weird sort of um, delusional pivoting, and I, I don't know any other way to describe it. So I was just watching an interview with a uh, Trump supporter yesterday, last night as a matter of fact, and the interviewer uh, asked the woman, are there, she's a, she's a member of Mar-a-Lago, and which I believe the membership is $100,000 mm-hmm. a year. And uh, he, he asked her, well, or she asked the woman, um, what, you know, are there, are there any black or are there any people of color who are members of Mar-a-Lago? And the woman said, oh, sure. Uh, we have a wonderful black maitre d'. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> and there's this wonderful, wonderful yep. musician. That's and and yep. the point, and then, and so the the woman who was interviewing right. is trying to go a little bit deeper and like trying wow. to get her to see that, uh, and it was another white woman who was doing the interview, <laughs> and trying to get her to see like, yeah, but yeah. are there any members? Are there yeah. any members? Yeah. And she was like, right. oh yes. So yeah. I, I say that because I I I also I often find myself trying to find a good way, um, a meaningful way without without castigation but a meaningful way to get somebody to see like no like that's you, you're you you contributed to the lie that you just talked about you're con- yeah. you're a li- you've talked yourself into the lie and you don't even see the lie anymore that's the institutionalization yeah. right yeah yeah i mean i think p- part of it is that she hasn't she hasn't talked herself into it that's that's my point about the importance of the creative economy and other ways, and, and education, and uh, how we influence and tell ourselves stories. She has been taught from a child um, explicitly and implicitly through the curriculum of the school she went to, through what her parents taught her about who those other people are and what their place is. In her mind, it is exactly normal and righteous and okay for the only black person in Mar-a-Lago to be the maitre d' because that is the place that black mm-hmm. people belong. And so, you know, it's not even, it's almost not even her fault, except for the fact that we actually do live in 2017 and she's just <laughs> it by now. But perhaps, perhaps her wealth and her privilege has allowed her to stay in a couple, comfortable bubble in a bubble right where that hasn't been interrogated or she does not come in contact and in, in you know close contact or, or any with contradicting she doesn't different from her and then if you turn on the television and then if you go to the movies they perpetuate it you know if you right. go to Fifth avenue the designers that are there or seventh avenue the designers that are there they perpetuate it. You know, if you look mm-hmm. at who's running Wall Street, it's perpetuated. It's, it's, it seems like it's normal. So that's the importance of us being able to change narratives, to tell our own stories, John Singleton, um, to, uh, to interrupt the lie, the status quo, but also not for the sake of interrupting it unless that's part of the strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it also we are carrying um, life and truth and humanity. Like this is a, a human rights issue mm-hmm. when um, when certain people can be made invisible 
uh, and invisibilized to my Native American brothers and sisters um, or suppressed um, or be made to think that they are subhuman. Like, that's not right. Business case aside, um, <laughs> like, that's not right. And, and, and now I think in our country with all of the, um, I think, uh, interrogation and the, uh, dissolution of institutions and things that we took for granted, um, this is a good time and opportunity for those of us who care about our country, care about our world, to be uh, bold in making the case for, but also just creating the thing, like doing it, right. um, uh, um, just building it, um, because this is what we believe and this is what we are not willing to kind of lay down for and let the lie be uh, perpetuated. And to do it in ways that are creative, innovative, inclusive, and loving, um, but, but also that appreciate the urgency and, mm-hmm. and our own power in 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 doing it, you know. And I think that goes back to just the importance and the value in the case for and the intersection of arts and finance, arts and business, arts and economic justice, arts and social justice, because it's through that lens that one, we're, you know, you look at Trevor Noah, like that is the epitome of like art, mm-hmm. you know, the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, that's the epitome of yeah. art, yeah. pointing fun of, but also highlighting and lifting up the criticisms yeah. of society, the um, but in a way that pe- it's palatable, in a way that pe- yeah. it hopefully will get people to be like, oh, have I done that? Mm-hmm. Like you know, so. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also this this other end of the so that's on one end of the spectrum, right? So the other end of the spectrum, and and Bill Maher talks about this, and I'm in full agreement. You have the ultra liberalism, right? And you mm-hmm. have the ult- you know the far ultimate political correctness. Um, and and I think that that lends in real social justice conversations where people are getting offended at everything all the time doesn't yeah. help us either. You're like, you're not helping yeah. me. I sat on a panel one time, and at the end of the panel, this was literally right after, um, oh, I forget what it was, uh, something had happened. I think it was Philando Castile, which was here in Minnesota, the murder of uh, Philando Castile, and people had the safety yeah. pins and 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 I was on this three-person panel, and somebody had asked the panel, you know, what do you think about the safety pins? And this was after I already kind of went on a small tirade. <laughs> so the other two people on the panel were like, oh, well, you know, that's great, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, look, I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm only answering for myself. I really mm-hmm. don't care about your safety pin. I said, what, mm-hmm. if you really want to do something for me, right. look at where your money is. Where are you yeah. banking? Where are you making your investments? Where are you? Good for you. Good for you, <laughs> Elaine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I say because absolutely. until we move the money, and, and there's more of us than there are of them, until we move mm-hmm. our money out of these institutions that are set up and perpetuating, yeah. keeping us where we are, nothing is going to change. No, mar- mm-hmm. no amount of marches, no amount of, you know, pussy hats, like <laughs> none of that. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody mm-hmm. who went to um, a woman's march needed to divest their money into out of, out of their, their, their big bank and put it into mm-hmm. a community bank, put it into a credit union, put it into yeah. 
a community fund, that's what every single one of those women, if they haven't already, should have done because that is money is the message that the, that the institutions understand. So if that's the mm -hmm. language that you understand, I'm willing to speak that language. That's fine. <laughs> and then I will show you through my money, you know, and, and we talked about this, you know, you know, Jordan Peele was able to get a hundred million dollar movie made. Like that is, mm -hmm. that, let's move the money. Let's move, we can have all these conversations about, you know, social justice and economic justice at the top. I think we need to have a top down and a bottom up approach. And that's the grassroots conversation, but we need to move the money. And this is why this mm -hmm. whole conversation around philanthropy and impact investing is because there, there's so much, that's where the money is. That's where the money yeah. is, which leads me mm -hmm. to my next, my next thought or my next question around, you know, the accumulation of wealth was built on the backs of people of color, and there's very little acknowledgement of that historical context in philanthropy and even in, in the finance sector. Often that history is unknown to the staff who are charged with distributing those philanthropic dollars. How can social entrepreneurship be a mechanism for driving social change, and what's the role that philanthropy can play? Hmm. Social entrepreneurship could be uh, for social change. Well, I mean, uh, I think it, it is a way to um, to bridge a divide across sectors. Um, I, for all intents and purposes, am really uh, a social. I describe myself as a social change architect. I come from the social sector, from the justice sector. Um, and have been, you know, just recently making this pivot uh, and extending of my network into the world of social entrepreneurship and, in particular, um, VC world, uh, startups, uh, and the like. And it's because I think that uh, those are opportunities for us to learn from each other. I think social justice folks and social change folks who have um, been doing great work in terms of lifting up the systemic barriers and, and uh, interventions that need to be made are lots of times driven by understanding and analysis of history and, and, and oppression um, and inequity. Um, some of that great analysis and um, perspective needs to find its way into the world of VCs and of um, impact and investment and philanthropy that is not there. Likewise, some of that understanding of how markets work and of how to affect and influence consumer behavior and marketing and um, money-making and wealth-creating, that information needs to find its way into the social change sector. Um, because they can be useful tools to get uh, um, equity and justice and, um, and to change um, and see the change that we want to see. And so I see social entrepreneurship as a blended uh, opportunity to, to, to be cross-sectoral and to help bridge that gap. Um, I, I would like to see more uh, social justice, not just nonprofit uh, or social sector um, entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs like myself who are motivated by social justice to bring those sensibilities and to become, quote, unquote, social entrepreneurs um, because I think 
those sectors need us. Um, they are making good strides and attempts at, you know, quote-unquote diversity and inclusive finance and inclusive entrepreneurship, but why should they need to, like, figure that out, you know, build the house and learn about how to build a house mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at the same time when there are all these people who live and die and breathe and create by those things in the social change and social justice um, sectors. So organizations like Transform Finance and um, some other, you know, really uh, forward-thinking spaces are welcoming people who are from other sectors than the one that they've been in because that's the way. I mean, cross-sector cross, cross, um, collaborations are the ways that we're all going to be able to um, become more innovative. And to, and to now, when our, our country and our world needs it the most, recreate structures. Exactly. <laughs> recreate the new economy that is right. not going to be extractive, um, that's not going to be oppressive. People, work is done differently now. It's a knowledge-based economy. All these people need to be uh, uh, skilled up and, and their other skills brought into um, kind of corporate America. So, it, it, you know, it, it, it may seem fanciful to some, but it's really clear to to many of us, that the kind of rigid lines of who's in what sector and what goes on here, to, for those to be so rigid is, is not going to, to serve us well in innovating uh, into, you know, the next century and, and what we need to eat, you know, the, the economy, but also uh, innovation and creativity and also governance um, and community making. Like, we've got to mix it up. And people who can flow in different ways and think out of both sides of their brain and with all of their heart and mind and body and soul and intellect, like mm-hmm. we need to figure out how to, you know, not just talk and, talk and chew gum, but to bring our whole selves into, into these discussions and into these sectors. And I think that is the link to when we talk about social impact investing. So for our audience who doesn't know, impact investing is a way to invest for positive and social and environmental change with a profit, in short, doing good and doing well. And while the strategy is kind of being morphed, and I would argue co-opted into um, that, that that means competitive returns, and I have some issues about what we are calling competitive market rate returns, um, but that there is an opportunity to foster that innovation and my fear is and I think I and I see it playing out is while social impact investing it could be one of these great tools to fund innovation that there's still this um, framing around what that means and what that looks like but it goes back to what we Uh talked about earlier of just not recognizing the culture and the community innovative solutions they may not look innovative to you but they are innovative for that community, recognizing that and banking on that and investing in that as a new way of doing business, as a new way of thinking, as a new way of community development, as a new way of, of, of creating this new economy, of creating new realities, of creating new community dynamics. And all of that mm-hmm. is part of economic justice. All of that is a part yeah. of social justice. And so looking at you know, a philanthropic um, uh, investment portfolio and looking at their program-related investments and seeing how being purposeful and mindful about 
how are we going to use our portfolio to dismantle the very uh, system that philanthropy creates in being philanthropy, yeah. right? So how can yeah. we use yeah. this money to yeah. um, to to purposely, mindfully, intentionally build wealth? Is that wealth education, not financial literacy? If I hear about financial literacy one more time, I think I'm going to blow a gasket. But wealth development, <laughs> and as you said, being included in conversations and being and and that information being transmitted. Through, through ambassadors or whatever we want to call them to be able to, to translate that into our communities so that communities can come up with a new narrative of how they're going to uh, interact with the finance sector and for the and the finance sector how it's going to interact with them so I 100% mm. agree and I think by looking at direct investment and and this is some of the things that I'm working on um, how can mm -hmm. that all be used in, in different ways and not going through the traditional systems one of the challenges that we're having here in Minnesota is that while we have all these alternative lending opportunities we have these um, financial uh, community development financial institutions they're now taking on a lot of institutional money which means institutional regs and institutional regulations mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you you're going to these organizations because you can't get a loan from the bank because of your credit score you may have a great mm -hmm. business idea whether it's in the creative market or outside of the creative market but you can't get a tr you know traditional business loan um, so you're going to one of these alternative lenders but they bought the money from one, a traditional bank, yeah, and the bank has given them those yeah. yeah, the same. I mean, they might be relaxed a little bit, but essentially yeah. it's the same. So, what are we doing? So, I really feel like this is a unique place mm -hmm. for social impact investing and philanthropy to really um, put themselves out of business, because that's what I see it as. You, philanthropy needs to put mm -hmm. itself out of business, and I think that when you mm -hmm. look at truly innovative um, philanthropic folks like uh, Bill Gates and I don't agree with all of his philanthropy but you know the charge one of the charges was we want to get rid of malaria in Africa and a simple solution was nets right mm -hmm. it's not like mm -hmm. it's it, it elegant in its simplicity and it worked mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. let's start mm -hmm. to think about holistically simplistically but from a community I don't think they would have come up on that on their own it was because they included community right. in that conversation yeah. that they were yeah. able to get to a simple solution that was low cost high yeah. impact right yeah. so yeah. well one last yeah. question um, before I let you go here um, don't let me go uh, I don't, you know I'm not going to let you go. <laughs> okay, good. Good. You, you, go. you, you spent several years as the managing director for Race Forward, um, yes. the Center for Racial Justice Innovation, and a, you've been a presenter at Facing Race, which is the, na the nation's largest multiracial, multidisciplinary, intergenerational gathering on racial justice. What are the challenges of working and managing inclusive and diversive work or gathering spaces and what are ways to manage those challenges wow so managing inclusive and diverse work yeah so uh shout out to to race forward um certainly uh a, a leading and under uh appreciated <laughs> um pioneering uh multiracial racial justice organization that um, does great work. Um, and yeah, I, I, so, so my experience there as managing director um, and, and also as a consultant to other um, nonprofit organizations, 
um, most of the challenges that you find outside of those unique places like a race forward that is actually uh, quite diverse and quite inclusive, um, most of the challenges, you know, are, are, are not how to do that. So if I understand your question correctly, you're saying how do you even, what, if you have some diversity, what are the challenges that are there and how do you manage them? Um, it's interesting. I think um, part of it is that diversity is not the, the end goal. It is, in fact, as, as you've um, been talking about, you know, equity and inclusion. So um, keeping your eye on the prize in terms of what does that look like and how are decisions being made in ways that honor the impact and the input, rather, of people who will be affected by those decisions. Um, this is the, the work I have been doing around collaborative leadership and collaborative methodology uh, for many years. And, and at, the, at the base of it, you know, appreciating that um, policies that are made, decisions that are made, being able to figure out ways to honor the opinions and the perspectives of people who may not be the traditional decision makers, but incorporating that into the decisions that are made. That's a challenge because you can have a diverse group, but differentials in power and, um, and in uh, authority in ways that those people in those positions or those ways of doing business themselves need to be brought through the lens of, is this inclusive? Is this honoring of different diversity? You can have diverse people in a room but not uh, uh, elicit the diversity of their opinions. So even appreciating... Or you, or you can even have the opposite, is, which is what I see. And I sit, on, I sit on a few boards where I'm the only person of color. So, and and you, we know that there's a lot more oh, yeah. boards that don't oh, yeah. have any people of color. So how do you... you know? having that conversation when there is no one, (laughs) uh, you know, to to, to at least raise the consciousness, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's more the norm than not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, And and you need to find who who the allies are, you know, and and have uh, being able to take some risks but also being clear about what your strategy is and when to – you know, what, what fights, quote-unquote, to pick and, and how to do it. But I think things that appeal to people appreciating, like, for most of part, these organizations, these philanthropies, these, they have values <laughs> that they right. espouse that can yeah. certainly be the bedrock for pivoting into, like, how do we live out those values? I think yes. my experience has been when you help people who are driven by values or have values, and even corporate America has values, mm-hmm. and you can – and you can draw upon those values to see and to point them towards opportunities to live those values in the realm of diversity, inclusion, and equity, people respond to that because we, we don't like to think that we are hypocrites. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and so I think those are ways to do it in those um, homogenous, uh, heterogeneous, uh, white-dominated settings. Um, but even when you have diverse settings, because we've all been taught these stories and uh, we've all been led to think that uh, competition and individualism and dominance is the way to go, it plays out even when you have 
um, you know, ethnically and racially and gender diverse spaces where we need to interrogate, again, some of those assumptions that uh, we often have been brought up with into, like, how can we be different and live out our values? I love that point, and that's the, that is actually the point that I used to make or I do make with clients when I'm doing portfolio reviews, whether they're on the philanthropic side or the investment side. I'm like, hey, you know what? Um, this is what you've identified as your values. I don't see that playing out in your investment portfolio. I don't see that playing yeah. out in your grant-making portfolio. These sure. are the reasons why. And, and then it's up to them if they really want to have a trans, you know, honest conversation about or if they want to justify and rationalize the decisions that they've made. Because if they're justifying and rationalizing and not even taking in that somebody has pointed out that it, mm-hmm. those two things don't align, um, then, yeah. then, then we know where they're at. But if, a, if an organization says, huh, never thought about that, then you know that you've, you've kind of cracked the nut to be able to go to the next level or go to the next step of like, okay, are you willing to do something about it? And if you're willing to do something about it, then here are the things you can think about restructuring or strategizing. But I think the other thing that needs to be named is that it's not easy and, um, you know, and I was just saying this in a conversation, we were a uh, conversation about diversity and equity and inclusion, and I'm like, I, would t- I was a room of mostly white people, and I said, and I will tell you this, this conversation of diversity, equity, inclusion is not easy for people of color either. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think that there's a presumption, and it's never named, that oh, we enjoy talking about this stuff all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's simply yeah. not the case. And yeah. It's, like, it's yeah. hard for us because we're talking about pain. We're talking about violence. We're talking about yeah. microaggressions. We're talking about, and sure. this happens every day. And so to bring right. all of that into the room, it's difficult. So just as it's difficult for you, it's difficult. And if we can come from that shared space of, of empathy and compassion and that this is going yeah. to be difficult and we're going to be compassionate with, any, with one another as we figure it out, that is yeah. the best thing that can be done. And that's how we make strides to go forward. Mhm. Yeah, that that um that reminds me of uh what I think is missing from the kind of impact investing and social entrepreneurship space around these conversations of equity and inclusion which is to your point of uh when people of color and other historically and present day disenfranchised groups do not have the power to set the tone and the agenda about how to engage these conversations. Um, that itself is a, is a reification of the, of, the, of the problem. And so I believe in why Beautiful Ventures is, uh, is, is trying to uh, make an intervention in some of that dynamic that the, the quickest, most smartest strategic ways to, be, to really shift these inequities in those systems is to support people uh, of color and other um, groups um, who have been marginalized to be able to run funds, to support fund managers, people who mm-hmm. are trying to create funds 
so that their investment theses and their connections and their networks can flow to those other entrepreneurs and accelerators who are being marginalized, who are not even being seen or appreciated or don't know where to be found because the people running those funds did not go to school with them, don't have relationships with them, don't see themselves, you know, in us a lot of times. And there's not enough conversation about how to support those structural interventions at the level like you're trying to do with the credit union, uh, like I'm trying to do with a, a fund and accelerator, because we do bring a different lens. We do have other gifts and, and, and networks and perspectives that can help to bridge the inequities in ways that people who, um, who are not of our communities, who have not experienced that, who do not experience life the same way, um, just will take a long, long time to, to get up to speed and then to be able to run businesses that incorporate those from the, from the ground up, from all of the secret sauce of what they do. And we're missing out. We're all missing out. So a lot of attention is going to diversity and how do we find these entrepreneurs, but they're still controlling the money. They're mm-hmm. still, you know, having the, the wealth that has been uh, created for them in lots of ways on the backs of people of color to, to have be the gatekeepers and disperse those monies and to start those accelerators. And I'm saying, folks, if you really want to make interventions, you'll figure out ways to support people like, you know, Elaine, people like Melinda, people like the Impact America Fund, people at Transform Finance who are already get it, already convinced of it, and have wonderful winning strategies to bridge these gaps and to make our economy and these sectors and our communities more um, community wealth creating, not extractive, inclusive, diverse, um, and have equity at the center. Well, and on that note, I want to thank you for being on the show. We've been talking to Melinda Weeks-Laidlow of Beautiful Ventures. She's also the social entrepreneur in residence at Echoing Green, faculty at Move to End Violence, an affiliate of Race Forward, the Center for Racial Justice Innovation, and an affiliate of Interaction Institute of Social Change. If you'd like to connect with Melinda, you can check her out on her website at www.melindaweeks.com or beautifulventures.com. Melinda, thank you again for being on the show. We need to have you back. We have so much more to talk about. But oh, I thank yeah. you for spending your time with awesome. us today. Thank you so much, Elaine. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. You can check out previous episodes of Social Impact Now at www.socialimpactnow.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at SISG. If you're listening on iTunes, give us a five-star rating 